From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Grand Rapids, Michigan. On this week's edition, Amazon, Google, and the White House team up to visualize climate risk, the growing appeal of urban farming, catching up on Climate Week, and is energy productivity the missing link for the Paris Accord? We're powering forward this week on 350. It's September 30th, last day of September 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, I'm here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, talking to senior writer Lauren Hepler, who's back home in Oakland, California. Hey, Lauren. Hi there. How's it going? It's a lot cooler here than it is there. It's uh, been a hot spell coming through the Bay Area when I left in like 90s for several days and high 80s. And it's it's kind of 60 and, and you know, drizzly and sort of nice, oh, refreshing given rain. the Bay Area weather. So I'm happy to be in the yeah, Midwest. Yeah, drizzle sounds very exotic at this point. But uh, so you were right on the road after Verge last week, getting together in Silicon Valley, talking convergence of sustainability and technology at our big annual event. Uh, but what brings you to the Midwest this week? Uh, well, this is the third of our three September meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network. That's the membership group we have of sustainability executives from big companies that we bring together several times a year. And we have three week three meetings uh, each in January, May, and September. And if it's a member, you get to pick which of those you want to go to. So uh, this week, uh, Steelcase um, is hosting the meeting, which is one of my favorite companies to visit Really, that I've ever been to. And I've been to, I don't know, a lot of corporate headquarters uh, all over the United States and around the world. And this is just one of the coolest. Um, Steelcase is a office, well, they started off as an office furniture company. Now there's architectural and technology for office environments and education, healthcare, and other industries. Um, they've been around 106 years, 105 years, something like that, uh, based here in Grand Rapids. And, um, their offices are, if, if you, if you work in an office, you wish you worked here. <laughs> I don't care, you know, what kind of environment you like, you'll find it here. Um, because this is a, a living lab for what they do. And, uh, you just, you know, there's so many, Places for whether you want to work individually, work in small groups, work in bigger groups. You want to you want to change where you sit and what you look at, and you know the kind of space and chair uh, and couch or whatever five times a day, six times a day. You know, it's all here. It's it's just it's really amazing, and um, it's just a really fun place to imagine. Where would I work if I if I where would I sit if I worked here or stand or walk around? It's just kind of, it's really fun. Plus, it's a great company. We'll talk a little bit later of a conversation. I had a conversation with Angela Nahikian, who runs the sustainability here. And uh, the stuff they're doing with the circular economy is just uh, downright cool as well. Well, it sounds like it's safe to assume you're sitting in style. So <laughs> let's jump right in to the Week in Review.
So there's so much to talk about this week, Lauren. I mean, first of all, we're still, you know, just enjoying the afterglow from last week's Verge conference. Last week was also Climate Week, and there's a lot that was going on there, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. And then there's just... You know, the usual stream of, of interesting stories and, uh, and developments and new partnerships and things. It's just, it's, it's always amazing me as long as I've been in this field and we're, you know, sometime between 25 and 30 years, how much happens every single week. And this is certainly one of those. Yeah, well, you said it, Joel. Climate Week was going on uh, on the other side of the country. Uh, while we were in Santa Clara, California at Verge, we actually had an intrepid correspondent, Anya Halsemeiser, uh, who was on the ground in New York and talking to some of the companies. I know she touched base with Mahindra, a big Indian industrial industrial conglomerate, on some of the work they're doing as part of this new group called the Energy Productivity 100. You might have heard of the RE100 or the Renewable Energy 100, but uh, now we're thinking about productivity and efficiency at scale within corporations as well. It's the EP100, so get used to yet another one of those kind of names bandied about. Mm-hmm. And luckily, Anya had a few minutes uh, to touch base from New York. Uh, she was talking to us live from her apartment in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And here's a little taste of what she heard last week at Climate Week. So what was different about this year's Climate Week was that it followed on the heels of COP21. So there is also a lot more activity and a lot more um, discussion of what companies, businesses, and jurisdictions, nations um, are going to actually do to get the world to COP21 goals and keep global warming between two degrees. There is a lot of activity around RE100 um, and EP100, which is what I focus my article on. Energy productivity or energy efficiency is actually just taking what companies already have in their manufacturing process, in their supply chain, and making it more energy efficient. So you're using, you're going to be doing more with the same amount of, or with the same amount of energy that you already have. So I spoke with Jenny Chu, who's the head of EP100 and is also um, responsible for rolling out that program across Asia at the moment. So what we're doing is we're taking a traditional energy intensity metric and inversing it so that you're looking at um, economic output over energy input. Mm -hmm. And that way a, com a company can choose the energy productivity metric that makes sense for them. So they're looking at, for instance, revenue over um, unit of energy or number of widgets that they manufacture over the unit of energy. And that way they really see the correlation of how energy is connected to all facets of their business operations. In the same way we look at labor pro productivity, um, you can, can increase the number of workers in your workforce, but if you're not educating them, their productivity doesn't necessarily increase in the same way you look at energy. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I mean, I have to say that Climate Week continues to rock on. I, I was hearing people say that uh, this isn't going to be a big year because it's after Paris and there's not a lot of new stuff going on. But I, from what I heard, lots of great conversations, lots of great energy um, and, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, kudos to the climate group and Ann Davidson and everybody there who, who puts that together year in, every year, uh, just keeps working. 
And of course, the other thing that's going on, and one of the reasons that Climate Week is held that week is, well, there's two other things going on. One is uh, the Clinton Global Initiative. But the reason the Clinton Global Initiative is there that week is it's also the opening of the UN General Assembly for the year. Um, but we did have a piece this week from our uh, editor-at-large, David Crane, uh, Senior Operating Executive at Pegasus Capital, and I think everyone knows by now, former CEO of NRG, um, uh, where he laments uh, this year's Cl Clinton Global Initiative because it's uh, said to be the last one. Uh, and I know they, they talk about the last one. Uh, that's assuming that Hillary Clinton wins. I, I, I don't know if it's still the last one, if she doesn't somehow. But uh, in any case, um, he was talking about how sad it was, you know, to see that come to an end. He's been, uh, this is his seventh uh, CGI. And I think what the point of this uh, always provocative piece that uh, David uh, typically uh, submits for us is that, um, you know, lost in all this politics is the fact that the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative are kind of doing God's work out there. And uh, David was directly involved with, with one particular initiative um, of installing solar in Haiti, you know, putting solar rays on our, on schools, orphanages, social enterprises in one uh, particular part of the, of the Haitian Central Highlands. And, um, uh, you know, talked about the, the experience, talked about the impact, and talked about uh, the direct involvement of, of, of President Clinton, Bill Clinton, in, in this. And um, and the fact that this is the kind of – that's what the Clinton Global Initiative is all about. It's not about whatever Donald Trump and folks are talking about. And he lays in kind of heavy to, to Donald Trump. We don't usually run political stuff on Green Biz, but this is an exception because it's an opinion piece by by David who has some very strong opinions. Anyway, it just was interesting to, to really get that perspective. Yeah, I can't say I'm shocked to see that at the top of our trending stories right now after the debate this week. Um, but agreed, it'll be interesting to see, um, especially with all the talk of the sustainable development goals right now, if some of the momentum, the people that have been involved with CGI are looking to parlay that investment or those projects into other initiatives in the coming months and years, but certainly something to watch. That's a really good point, uh, Lauren, is that I would imagine that Darn near every, if not every initiative and commitment that is made at the Clinton Global Initiative um, and and executed by the various partners has to do with one of the 17 sustainable development goals around health and wellness and women's equity and and uh, obviously climate change and uh, poverty. I mean, that's what they're doing. So now that we're into this... Uh, you know, this new set of commitments for the next uh, 15 years that is set by the United Nations. Um, we'll have to find another organization that's as, as, as focused on execution of those goals as CGI has been. Well, not to be too inside the beltway, but this week uh, we also did dig into an interesting story out of the White House, and that was looking at a joint project from the World Resources Institute and the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. It's called PREP. That's an acronym for Partnership for Resilience and Preparedness, which is diving straight into this issue of how you prepare for climate change, how you mitigate or gird your city or your business for potential shocks like uh, wildfires or sea level rise or, or heightened risk of a drought, all these things that, that we hear about um, 
as being potentially exacerbated by rising average temperatures. Um, and the idea here is to bring together a range of government agencies and corporations. You've got NASA, Microsoft, NOAA, Amazon, Google, and they've all worked with this data visualization company called Visuality um, to sort of bring together massive amounts of data into a sort of clear mapping platform so you can really drill down into your location and see hey what exactly am i at risk of and then how do i potentially take action knowing that i'm at risk yeah this is a really interesting uh, kind of roll up of in some ways it's very similar to what the uh, chief resilience officer uh, position has developed under the uh, 100 resilient cities program that was launched by the Rockefeller Foundation because a lot of that's around you know how do we look at um the various components of, of a city, uh, public safety and emergency preparedness, emergency response, um, and other issues that like equity that get to social fabric that, you know, the stronger that is, the bit more resilient a city will be when there, when shocks do come. This is a federal program and, and specifically looking at, at the data piece and because some of the cities that are part of, you know, the 100 resilient cities and they're all over the world. Um, uh, some of them are using data more effectively than others. And I, I love that, um, the federal, this is sort of rolled up to the federal level and they're doing really what they do best, which is leveraging their assets. In this case, you know, the work of, uh, uh, the research of, of, you know, NOAA, NASA and others with the private sector to figure out how do we implement this stuff and, and make this stuff available so that cities, counties, companies, regions, states can come in and figure out how, what do we need to do? Where are the risks? How do we better, as you said, gird ourselves for whatever the shocks are, including the extreme weather from climate change or terrorism or political or economic or health care? This is really, really important work. Yeah, and another element of this, this is all an extension of this sort of open data, open source efforts that we've been hearing a lot about for years now. Um, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how companies that are involved in this, like Amazon and Google, um, decide to get involved or how they're trying to apply this to their own operations. Obviously, Google being in Silicon Valley right on the bay probably <laughs> has some thoughts on things like sea level rise. But um, the, the other thing that I'm curious uh, to see is if we get more specific examples of how businesses are using this data, like the small-scale example they gave at the launch event for PrEP last week was um, with Sonoma County in California, where a grape grower can go to the dashboard and look up sort of an area very close to their plot of land and then decide what to do about water risk or those sorts of things. So I think the more we can talk about resilience in terms of specifics instead of high-level scary climate change uh, is only for the better. Well, and also it's it gets uh, starts to develop the tools that we need because you you quote uh, John Holdren, the director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, saying that data avail availability alone isn't enough; that the data needs to be translated into actionable information. And I think that's a really important point: is that now with satellites and sensors and and search data uh, and and so many other things that we have. There's no shortage of data. We know just tons and tons and tons about what's going on, but we don't really know what it means. And, and so figuring out the tools and the templates uh, to turn this 
information into things that you know cities, counties, states can act on and have it there. You know, be monitoring whether it's during good times or bad. Uh, that's what's needed. And again, this is a as I said before, a great role for the federal government in all of this is you know helping develop the tools that then can get propagated from the you know, sectors, public, private, nonprofit, and whatever. Uh, that's exactly what we need. a few times on this show about the future of food and specifically this really interesting area of urban farming. Our senior writer, Heather Clancy, took a look at some of the latest in that field and she joins us now. How's it going, Heather? Hey, Lauren. I'm great. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, what was what was sort of your news peg this week? The story that's on the site that we'll link to in the show notes was why ShopRite and Compass Group have a taste for urban farming. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to moderate the food systems panel at Merge this year, where we had several policy people speaking about urban agriculture. And and when I speak about urban agriculture, I don't mean just rooftop farms, but the vertical farms and gardens and small, small acreage in cities. And as I was preparing this, lo and behold, there was a major urban ag bill proposed um, as part of the the new agricultural bill. And the the thing about it is, is to set up just a better policy framework and federal support for these these new sorts of approaches, including research and then just just money for helping set aside the land or rather the the rooftops and warehouses for these these facilities. So that that the timing is very definitely a lot of interest in this and the timing is becoming more compelling. Yeah, look at that. Congress actually doing things. I thought they were just trying to not shut down the government. So who Well, knew? they have to they have to pass it and who knows if it will <laughs> pass. But the but the point being that many and, and the the person who introduced it went to Michigan to you know, Detroit to to announce it. She's from Michigan, certainly, uh, but Detroit is is a hotbed of of experiments in this area, as are other major cities, Chicago, New York, uh, and San Francisco, of course. Right. So I've heard about sort of the cities and the, the city planners being like, hey, this could be a great way to sort of diversify the food supply and all that. What kind of companies and sort of operational issues are, are part of this field at the moment? So here in my home state of New Jersey, there was a, a new facility opened this week by Aero Farms in Newark, of all places, in an old steel factory. So what, what that company is doing is working, they see it very much as an economic opportunity. They are working with the city of Newark and other places to find and reclaim spaces that are not being used, old warehouses and so forth. And they're, they're really a, a technology-based approach in this, in this particular instance. They have managed uh, as well to broker some pretty interesting deals with, for example, uh, Wakefern, which is a food company here in in New, New Jersey, and they they own the Shoprite brand. So they are Aero Farms is is distributing produce to this particular uh, supermarket chain, and the way it works is is they are 
distributing to the hub and then and then the the grocery store is responsible for getting the produce around. But the that's one of the examples of uh, an organization that's that's growing very rapidly in, in this space. The, the facility that it opened this week is 13,000 trays. Vertical, it's a vertical farm play. Uh, and fascinating, fascinating um, use of hydroponics and um, actually aeroponics and LED technologies in order to cultivate the plants. Definitely. And we know in this field, there's also often a lot of talk about reducing water inputs, reducing reliance on chemical fertilizers. Um, what are you finding in terms of, I, I would think safety could potentially be an issue in terms of some of the, the challenges these companies are bumping up against and opportunities? Yeah. So safety was a big issue at my panel at Verge. AeroFarms Aero is handling some of those issues. fascinating by tweaking the spectrum on these lights, on these um, the LED technologies that it's using, it's able to a- adjust how the, the pesticide, it doesn't have to use pesticides. All it does is tweak the, the, the light spectrum for the particular vegetable or, or leafy green that it's, it's growing, and it's able to scare away the pests, if you will. They also have RFID technology that you're, they're using on every tray. So every person who touches that tray, every input that's added to that tray in one of their facilities is tracked. So as far as safety goes, there's going to be a record of, of how that particular produce was grown that that's probably very few organizations in the rural area would have a, an opportunity to create today. It's, it's um, fascinating, especially as, as more and more cities are experimenting with these things. The safety has to be baked into where that food goes, how it's controlled, how it's handled and so forth. And we were just talking before we started recording about uh, some of the educational issues potentially here. I think I, I heard you throw out kelp fettuccine, kelp pasta. Um, so what <laughs> what are these companies thinking about in terms of potential barriers to adoption or how you sort of integrate these products into the mainstream food system? There was a figure thrown out last year by the UN, one of the organizations with the UN, and it suggested that about 10 to 15 percent, that's one five, of today's food supply is cultivated in some sort of urban garden or farm or facility uh, compared to rural or, you know, even big ag. And that suggests that Urban agriculture has a role already, but it will likely play a role within regional systems. So perhaps, perhaps it will supplement things that regional farms are supplying. So maybe there could be a, a focus on a specific type of produce in, in a region, or it could be used to supplement, uh, you know, the farm, the rural farms could concentrate on things that might provide a better economic opportunity or where they may be able to scale uh, because of urban, uh, urban farm is, is picking up the slack, if you will. The other huge role that they're likely to play is in education. If you think about it, when you decide what or what you don't like to eat, often that's formed, shaped in your childhood. You know, the, <laughs> your parents are trying to get you to try everything at the dinner table or whatever, and you're liking, you like a food or you don't. So I believe that these, these farms, as well as the, for example, the food service organizations that work with them, such as Compass, will uh, be important for shaping what we're able to eat in the future. Agriculture and, and the way we think about it, if we try to feed the world with the, with the food we've already created, we're just, it's going to be a very big challenge. But if we think about other forms of, 
of vegetables or produce or whatever in different ways, then we're more likely to eat foods that will add to our supply rather than just make the, the existing one go in different places. And the seafood confettuccine uh, example I found fascinating. It's a, a compass was talking about it last week, Helene York at, at Burge. And she's experimenting with this seafood fettuccine. It's kind of like kelp fettuccine. It's kind of like spinach fettuccine, she said, different flavors. And it's being cultivated in an underwater uh, garden, if you will, in, uh, near, near one of their facilities. So if you think about urban agriculture, one of the biggest roles it will play is in shaping what we're willing to eat in the future and, and, and thinking about food in a different way. Well, you mentioned Helene York, who's the global director of responsible business for the food service company Compass Group. One of their big clients happens to be a little company called Google. Um, And she thinks a lot about the future of this space. So let's take a listen to what she had to say last week at Verge. We're a contract catering company. And what we do is we operate restaurants. So we hire the chefs. um, We set the procurement policies. um, And we buy the food and we serve the food. So what I do for Google, which is the client that I'm assigned to, is I advise them on sustainable sourcing policies. I then try to activate it, monitor it, and try to find innovation opportunities in food. Well, you know, I think we have a very pastoral notion of what, where our food comes from, or we have a very narrow notion it comes from the supermarket. And in fact, the supply chains are really long. Um, most food are grown in rural areas, and then they're shipped to a warehouse, and then they're shipped to another location, and you know, so forth. There, there's just long chains that, uh, from uh, field to table. But I think of this now as, as from tech to table, because there is no part of the supply chain that doesn't use technology. Some technologies are better than others. Some are better developed. Um, some of the technologies are very um, uh, proprietary, and I think that's where we have a problem. I understand the need for proprietary technology. I understand the need um, to beta test things. Um, but there is such a call for traceability um, and for responsibility in supply chains um, that technology sometimes narrows who you can go to for information about products. Um, and let me give you an example. Um, there's a great need for technology in uh, cocoa growing. Chocolate, we all love it, it's in danger. It is really in danger. Yes, I'm sorry to tell you that, but it really is. There's fungus problems. There's small farm problems. There's lack of infrastructure. And there's also a, you know, it's not cool to be a farmer anymore. In general, Um, around the world? In general, in so many different places and in parts of the world where there are other opportunities for the next generation, they're opting out. And that is a big problem in cocoa. So um, technology, I'll give you an example in the cocoa field, um, could really help um, with traceability. Understanding through smartphones, understanding where cocoa beans are produced, how much, um, really sort of helping check up on the labor issues, which are very, very significant in that field. A lot of child labor, some indentured servitude. Um, And then also just really tracing the beans all the way to production. The ag of the middle farmers, and I'm talking about those with 1,000 acres or 500 hectares, um, not the 20 acres and not the 10,000 or 100,000 acres. 
These guys are hungry for new technologies. They are using them. They are using heat maps, uh, GPS-enabled um, um, tools um, on their tablets as they are on tractors, as they're walking on, on feet. They are recording the history of their spaces um, so that they really can um, make reduce the number of chemicals um, that they use. And some of them have reduced it by 90%. Yeah. Um, and just have a much more biodiversity on the land so that they don't need the chemicals. And so the technology, if you start with the individual farmers, you're doing a couple things. One, you're bringing technology to rural small farms, which makes it cooler for the next generation, which helps preserve a need, uh, you know, an opportunity to have more cocoa. It also can compare peer to peer. If you have 200 farms, you can see the yields and who is producing what and so many hectares. And if you do that and you see that some are producing a lot less, you understand that there are pro there's probably an opportunity for training those farmers on better techniques to preserve their plants, to you know, grow other crops in addition so you've got more biodiversity, it's healthier for the soil, it's healthier for the products to manage pests in a responsible way, and it builds up the yields. And right now, we are just beginning to have that technology, but that could be enormous. All right, well, very interesting space to watch, and I'm sure our intrepid Heather Clancy will, will keep an eye on it. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lauren. Take care. So I'm sitting here with Angelina Hickian, Global Sustainability Director at Steelcase in this uh, Steelcase University Learning Center, this amazing building overlooking this, this prairie, a bioswale prairie. It serves as a flood control, but what an amazing space. But I want to talk less about this space. I've already bragged on that somewhat in this program, but talk about the journey that you've been on. Uh, first of all, how long have you been at Steelcase? Uh, I've been at Steelcase a lot longer than I expected. I think officially this year I just got a letter that I've been here 25 years. Wow. And one of the things that's remarkable to me, Angela, about your journey here is that you have you started off as, as most uh, environmental or sustainability professionals do, looking at the, the operation and the energy, water, materials, efficiency, and got into some of the product things. Steelcase has uh, as much or as many cradle-to-cradle certified products as I think any company or close to it. I forget the stats. Um, and now you're you're getting into a, a much more entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial, some would say, within the company, where you're getting to look at strategy, and that's just a journey that not many people in your position 
get to take. Talk a little bit about, first of all, what you're doing and, and how that has evolved for you. Sure. Well, in some ways, I'm getting back to my roots because I, I started out and I've spent the majority of my time here at Steelcase not working directly in this area. You know, I've, I've worked for startups, I've worked in product development, I've worked in advanced concepts and research. So sort of the, the work that, that is going on right now that I'm a part of is really more akin to that and really is a culmination of a lot of those things that, you know, I and others have done over time and, and now applying it to this space. Um, you know, there's a lot of groundwork and, and uh, plowing the fields that needs to happen before you can do this because there's a lot of core competency to be built and that takes time. But I think at this point we're ready to kind of pull a lot of that together and put it into uh, more systems models and apply those competencies to uh, maybe some new kinds of business models and innovations. So it's an exciting time. Uh, it, it really is an exciting time in our business, but um, definitely for the role that we play. And I know you've already talked a little bit about some of this has to do with the circular economy and some business opportunities. I discussed this with your CEO, uh, Jim Keen, at uh, Green Biz 16 uh, earlier this year in, in, in Phoenix. Um, can you, what can you say? I know you haven't rolled these things out yet and you're, these are still to come, but what can you talk about in terms of how the company's strategy might be changing in a, in a circular model? Yeah, well, I think the one thing that doesn't change is, you know, we're all about people and the unlocking the promise of people. Um, so that doesn't change. I think what this does is allow us to do that even better and maybe realize our potential um, to do that for businesses and people. And you're talking about when you say unlocking the potential of people, these are your customers, obviously your employees, every company does that, but 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 this is about your the, the clients and customers who use Steelcase products. Yes, this is our corporate purpose. You know, this is what we do working in with, with and through companies and the design professionals and stakeholders that we work with. You know, we're all about trying to really um, enable people to do the best work they've ever done and um, to benefit society and the companies they work for and do it in a way that, you know, uh, kind of promotes a sustainable economy, a sustainable planet, um, all of the things that we're all aspiring to. So how does circular models or circular economy do that or do that better than you're doing it now? Well, I think it op offers new venues for growth. You know, we, we sort of use the term sometimes, you know, uh, working on the dark side of the moon, you know, where our clients and customers are actually living every day. Um, but a lot of businesses don't have the luxury of actually being so close to their customers in that process uh, of work or or in their homes. And, and we, we are in the fortunate position. We do have close relationships with our customers. And so, you know, this is about um, opportunities to create more value for them and create more economic opportunity for our company and our shareholders by really sort of taking the systems view of the business and really talking about how do we incorporate Internet of Things and technology um, and the research that we've done all this time and really see things happening real time and how, how might we use that uh, insight to, you know, make real-time adjustments to that. Instead of assuming, perhaps, and Jim Keen will talk about this, you know, sort of instead of assuming that we we can imagine in advance all the possible scenarios of working, you know, that anyone would ever need in one environment, um, this is about learning and evolving and, and really um, 
and really doing that real time, I think, eventually. But, you know, a lot of the, the work that we're doing is really laying the foundations for, um, you know, for all of that right now and, and trying to figure out how, you know, we're, we're going to um, build a, a systems level model. So dark side of the moon implies that there's part of the moon that you've you've been seeing and part of that you're just now discovering. So that's that's what you mean when when you say the opportunities. That's they're on that second half that that again you're not necessarily ready to talk about, but it's about uh, this circ- using a circular model will allow you to tap into some new opportunities. Yes, and we've given some glimpses into that. You know, at, uh, recently um, at some of the you know larger global trade shows, and we've started talking a bit about that. You know, what is it you know, to have you know intelligence about the environment? And you know, we're seeing that sort of across the board, whether it be you know in um, the intelligence to use excess capacity in a shared model. Um, you know, like like Uber and Airbnb are examples that are used a lot, but there are many others. Um, and, and how does that now um, sort of translate into our homes and our work environments? And how do we use what we can learn there? And of course, you know, issues of privacy and, and uh, you know, protecting individual rights through that process is really paramount in all of this. But the idea that we can apply some intelligence and learning and maybe have uh, a different level of insight into some of those things by working in those places where maybe it's been a, a little less clear and more shadowy, um, those, those dark side of the moon places where, where there's a lot of need and value yet to deliver. So how does this all tie back to sustainability? I mean, is, or, or is it a situation where sustainability in terms of at least environmental sustainability, as, as we t- typically think of it, sort of goes away? It's just sort of part of the fabric? Or, or, or can you point to, you know, is this uh, doing a lot more with a lot fewer materials, uh, creating products that have fewer toxics or uh, toxic ingredients, or uh, is this something you can measure by typical sustainability metrics, or does this sort of just become how you what you do, and and, and the, the sustainability part of it is understood but not necessarily measurable? Well, I think it's probably both. Um, you know, the I, I, there's a, a lot of conversation going on in the sustainable business community about whether, you know, this is really about growth and growth is bad and, you know, or, or growth, maybe irresponsible growth has, has been maybe not so um, positive uh, in a lot of ways. But I think this is really different. You know, this is this is about creating a um, and designing a systems view and really thinking through how all of the pieces are connected and how do we design a whole systems model that incorporates the people in a different way and the companies that we're working with in a different way, the byproducts of which should be an optimized model and optimized value out of that model. So I think it's, uh, you know, we sometimes say in the industrialized economy, we've designed half a model. We haven't designed for the use phase. We've designed for the provide phase. <laughs> and and with a lot of use-inspired features and design uh, insight, but not designing truly to be part 
of of that use phase and optimize it. So I would say it's both. Those I think the outcomes we certainly can measure and maybe better, but maybe maybe some of the aspects that have not been possible to measure before become possible because of of a new way of thinking about it and 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 really optimizing the business model as a whole system. Well, the systems view is what sustainability should be all about. So that sounds like you're off on a great journey. Uh, Angela Hickian, Global Sustainability Director for Steelcase, thank you for the conversation. And thank you for letting us come to your amazing office headquarters, space, uh, the, the spaces you have here, which are just so much fun to really see what's possible uh, in how we live and work and play. Well, it's always a pleasure, Joel. Thank you. And thank you for being here. to the week ahead we've got a webcast coming up on october 4th that's free to join and you can sign up by going to greenbiz.com events um, the topic du jour will be how to achieve sustainability goals with sound solar investments we'll have speakers from enernock and the eastern project development director for sun power corporation on the line and the goal there is to look at on-site solar and sort of this concept of being one of the fastest ways to hit corporate sustainability targets so be sure not to miss that again greenbiz.com slash events thanks lauren and that's our 350 podcast for this week go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find the links to the webcasts, organization stories, other things we've been talking about uh thanks as always to podcast director soraya melconian and you can contact us by email. We'd love to hear from you, 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. And until then, for all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 